victory, and Saul um, performed admirably. He did very well, and at the end of this victory, he gave God credit for it. When we first saw, saw Saul introduced, his qualifications to be king constituted being tall and handsome, and we saw that God undertook to give him what he needed to lead his people. He gave him his spirit and gave him a new heart. And so now we see that Saul takes advantage of that and he gives God credit for it. He doesn't take credit himself, which is wonderful to see. Israel had wanted a king to fight their battles. That's what they said when they rejected the judgeship model and wanted a kingship model. And God gave them that. And God gave them a king that in this first battle stood up well. He fought their battles and gave God the credit. Now, in chapter 12, we'll see that Samuel seizes the moment here to reinforce the relationship between God, the king, and his people, the children of Israel. And what we'll see through today's lesson, really, is a contrast of faithfulness. That's really the focus for today. In chapter 12, it's really about Samuel and his faithful ministry and God's faithfulness to Israel. And then in chapter 13, we see the tragic turn in Saul's kingship where he has faithless disobedience. So we'll start with chapter 12. And if I could have someone read for us verses 1 through 5, that'd be very helpful. Touch. Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, I have obeyed you, your voice, in all that you have said to me, and have made king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I, I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose, whose ox have, have I taken, whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, uh, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with the testi and testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Thank you, Hutch. So we see here in these first five verses that Samuel is, is telling the people, this is the way I have ministered to you. This has been representative of my ministry. I haven't taken any bribes. I have always told you the truth. And he, he mentions that his sons are with him, which is a little funny to me uh, because the, the sons didn't match up to Samuel's uh, ministry. They weren't faithful like he was. Um, and he he says that, you know, I, I, have, I have been transparent in my ministry in front of you. I have walked before you, and I have been completely fair. I haven't taken any bribes. I have done justice. Now, did you notice in these verses there's a key word that we, that we saw um, 
going to have to go back two weeks ago, so we're going to really dip into the memory banks here. Um, there was a key word that Samuel said, here's what a king's going to do. And here he uses the same word and said, this is what I didn't do. You see, did you hear it? Did you see it? Take, yeah. He said in, in was it chapter 8, where he, the, where he was talking about the king, the king's going to take your crops, he's going to take your land, he's going to take your sons and his daughters, and eventually he's going to take you, and you're going to be slaves. And here Samuel says, I have taken nothing. I, have, I am leaving the judgeship with empty hands. And so what he's doing here is it's kind of like a retirement speech from the judgeship. He's still a prophet, but he is handing over authority as a judge because now there's a different authority structure in Israel, the authority of the king. And the king is going to play that role as judge. The king will take, but this judge did not. So we see that Samuel is saying, I have been faithful in my ministry to you my entire life. And the people said, we agree. What a wonderful testimony. What an awesome thing to say at the end of your life, to be able to say with a clean conscience, I have been faithful in my ministry to you and have people validate that. It's incredible. All right, let's keep moving. Let's look on to verse 6. Someone read for us verses 6 through 8. Yeah, let's pray. Then Samuel said to the people, Is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your freedoms up out of Egypt? It is, it is the Lord. Now then, stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt, and settled them in this place. So it seems here that, that Samuel wants the people to face the reality that when they asked for a king, it wasn't because God had been unfaithful. God had faithfully brought them out of Egypt. He had given them Moses and Aaron to lead them. And he had... He had taken care of redeeming them out of Egypt from the slavery, the bondage that they were in, and bringing them out. God had been completely faithful to his promises. He brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, this, this, um, these references to Egypt have been kind of frequent in the book of 1 Samuel. This is the fourth time that the writer has mentioned that someone has talked about Israel coming out of Egypt. And the first time was back in chapter 2, verse 27. You may, you may remember the man of God that came and spoke to Eli and said, you know, your ministry is over. And he said, God had revealed himself to the house of Levi. He didn't use those words, but that's essentially what he's saying. Your fathers. He had revealed him. And so this should have been the focus of your ministry and, and, and faithfulness. And it wasn't. And then in chapter 8, God was speaking to Samuel after the people had said, give us a king like all the other nations. And God said to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And by the way, I brought them out of Egypt. And God reminds Samuel of that fact. And then in chapter 10, Samuel was speaking to the people at Mizpah before they chose the king. And he reminds them that God brought them out of Egypt and, God is, and, and they are now rejecting God. And now here we see 
twice in these verses, verse 6 and verse 8, that he mentions that God had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. So why is he saying this? Why all of these references to Egypt? There's something significant about this. What is going on? John. They were slaves. That's true. I didn't think about that, that, cor- that parallelism, but that's good. So yeah, they, they were slaves in Egypt. And what did God do? He brought them out of slavery and he put them in the promised land as free people. We see sometimes in the New Testament that the children of Israel being brought out of slavery in Egypt is a correlation, it's a metaphor for redemption. That we see that we were redeemed from being slaves to sin and Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be brought out of that and God is bringing us into a new life. And God gave Israel a chance at a new life in the, in the land of promise. We also see that God had promised before the people went into Egypt, God had promised that the, the children of Israel would go to Egypt, they'd live there 400 years, and then God would bring them out with what? A mighty hand. And God does exactly what he promised. And where was he going to bring them to? He was going to bring them to a land that he had promised to Abraham centuries before. What is God doing? God is saying, I keep my promises. God is a promise-keeping faithful God. Just as Samuel was faithful in his ministry, God is faithful to keep his promises. God kept his promises to Israel, but Israel failed to keep its promise of obedience to him. God repeatedly delivered the children of Israel from from their enemies in the land. I should have had this up while I was talking about it, sorry. They in, in, when they were in the promised land, they, they constantly were being afflicted by people from outside, the Canaanites that were there. And God repeatedly saved them, delivered them in the time of the judges. And see that in verses 9 through 11. If someone could read that for us. 9 through 11. Tyler, thanks. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. The Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. So here we see that, that God delivered Israel through all of these different judges. Did, did you catch that very first phrase in, in verse 9? What their fundamental problem was? They forgot God. They forgot him. Now, this wasn't a memory problem. This wasn't like old age setting in and they just couldn't remember anymore, like some of us have those problems. That's not what this is about. Forgetting God is fundamentally an act of the heart, of the sinful heart of man. 
that it constantly wants to push God aside and forget that he's there and put ourselves first. Forgetting God is at the core of their rebellion and their disobedience. But time after time after time, God graciously saved them. And then he graciously gave them a king when they demanded it. Let's look at uh, verses, what did we read before, through 11? I've forgotten already. Yeah, so let's start in verse 12. And when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, come against you and said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see the great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So we see here that God graciously gave them a king, and Samuel rebukes them for it, but points out that this is God's grace being manifested to them. In verse 14, he points out that blessing is still possible. He says that you can be well. That's another word of saying that God is still able to bless you. You can be well. So what are the three things that, that will result in blessing for Israel? It's a, the fundamental verb is follow. And Samuel says, you need to follow God. This is what you need to do. You need to follow after him. Now, if you are following God, then you are necessarily not leading God. So if you're following, you're walking behind him. If you're leading, you're walking in front of him. They're saying, he is saying to them, you need to follow God. You need to let him lead. And the way that you do that is three things. You need to fear God, you need to obey him, and you need to serve him. This word serve is going to pop up multiple times in this chapter. But this is what they needed to do. Failure to follow God will result in God being against them. Now what Samuel is doing is essentially summarizing Deuteronomy 28 and 29, in which, which Moses had laid out through God the, the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. To make sure that the people understood that Samuel was speaking for God, Samuel says, just so you know that God and I are like on the same page here, there's going to be thunder and rain that are going to come. He's calling upon God to act. Now, this is way more than just um, Samuel doing a trick. This is something that, that Samuel has done repeatedly through his ministry. You remember way back at the beginning, talking about Samuel and his initial ministry, it said that God did not let any of his words fall to the ground, as if an arrow that didn't hit the target. God made everything that Samuel said come to pass. And God's going to do that again. And Samuel speaks with such confidence. He says, here's what's going to happen. 
and he sends the thunder and the rain. And we've seen other references to thunder. Back in chapter 7, there was, um, there was thunder that confused the Philistines and, and resulted in a rout of them. You go back to chapter 2, there was a reference to thunder in Hannah's prayer. So we see now thunder and rain coming at a time when it's not a blessing. Rain is ordinarily thought of as a blessing. It's a blessing to get rain. If you're a farmer, you get rain and your crops grow, right? Well, the one time when the wheat farmer doesn't want rain is when it's time for harvest. And when the, the wheat is grown in the field and it is ripe, and it turns really gold and, you know, like a gold color, and it becomes more brittle because it's drying out. And if hard rain comes, or worse, hail, it can knock the kernels right off the wheat stalks. And now the kernels are on the ground and picking them up off the ground. These little tiny kernels is near impossible. So what he is doing is he is threatening their economic viability He's threatening maybe they're even their survival because they need this to live, to eat, to live. And, and he is saying, this is a serious thing. And so the people react in fear because they see that God will act. God is strong. And we see it, the challenge is extended again to faithfully serve God, starting in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. There's our word again, follow. The, following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, though it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king." So the people react to this thunder and rain, and they say, please intercede for us. They realize that they have sinned, and they confess it. And Samuel calls again for the people to follow God. This time, he, he has four different aspects of following God. He starts with, don't be afraid. Well, hold on. Didn't he say before that they're supposed to fear God, verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him? That was a fundamental part of following God before. Now following God involves not fearing him. I think the difference here is because the people have confessed. They don't need to be like walking around in fear, wondering if they're in right relationship with God. God has accepted their repentance. And they need to not be afraid of him now, but to continue to follow him faithfully, to walk with him, serve him completely, it says, with all their heart, and then don't pursue empty things. It's good instruction for us today, too. We see in this challenge to faithfully serve God that at the end of the chapter, Samuel commits to intercede. He even says, it would be sin for me to stop praying for you. Wow. 
How often do we think about failure to pray as a sin? I'm not sure that that's like on my, on my radar. <laughs> you know, when you sit there and you think to yourself, okay, God, I need to confess sin. You know, I, I want to have a pure heart before you. You start thinking of things, you know, a, a stray word that you say, a thought that was not good, um, you know, an anger, a pride, or whatever. Does this come to mind? I, I confess to you that this is not something that is like on my list of things like I need to check that and make sure that I have done this. Intercessory prayer is vital. It's something that leaders are supposed to do. It's something that all of us are supposed to do. In the early church, the elders, the, the impetus for the appointment of what we think are deacons was that the elders said we can't be distracted from the study of the word and prayer. It was that important. It was on par with study of God's Word. In 1 Timothy 2, God, Paul calls, calls Timothy to intercessory prayer for all people to be pleasing to God, especially the king. They were calling, he was calling him as a leader in a local assembly to intercessory prayer. This is something all of us need to do. We need to intercede with God on behalf of ourselves, on behalf of our brothers and sisters, on behalf of the lost. It's a sobering thought. Let's move on to chapter 13 now. And in contrast to seeing Samuel's faithful ministry and God's faithfulness and keeping his promises, we're going to see Saul being faithless in his disobedience. All right, could someone read for us verses 1 through 7? All right, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 there, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill, in, and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that, they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling." So we see the standing army that Saul has put together. It's a small army, 3,000 men divided between Saul's command and Jonathan's. And we see there's an initial victory here. Jonathan goes out, wins a victory against a garrison of the Philistines. The Israel, Israelites hear about it, and so do the Philistines. And the Philistines aren't going to take this lying down. They come back and say, we can't let these guys get away with this. And they come out with force. They prepare to fight. There are consequences for this victory. It's pretty clear that the Philistines have a technological advantage. 
They have a weapons advantage here with chariots and horsemen. It was well adapted to the plains that are near, nearer to the sea, of, to, to the Mediterranean Sea, as opposed to the hill country where, Israelite, where the Israelites mainly were. So the Philistines prepare to fight, but Israel reacts in fear. Some hide and some run, and they feel like they are in trouble. And Saul is feeling it too. We'll keep reading in verse 8. He, that Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Let's stop there for a second. Saul waits seven days. And wouldn't you know it, as soon as he offers the sacrifice, Samuel shows up. Now, evidently, Samuel had told him to wait seven days for him to come and sacrifice. There is an earlier event in chapter 10, verse 8, where Samuel told Saul to wait seven days at Gilgal. That event is probably two years before this event. So commentators debate, are these two events connected or not? Some take it that they were. Some take it that this is more of like a regular practice and there is a command by Samuel to Saul that's not recorded that he should wait for seven days at Gilgal. So it would be like, this is what we always do, Saul. I tell you I'm coming in seven days. You wait seven days, then we sacrifice and then we do what God wants. People are scattering and desertions are happening daily and so Saul offers the sacrifice. So now let's look in verses 11 and 12 at the conversation that happens after that. Saul has some explaining to do. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Let's keep reading. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people before, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. So Saul says, I had a good excuse. When Samuel confronts him, why did you do this? He comes up with four excuses. Number one is, well, the people were scattering. I had to keep all the people together. You know, time is of the essence here, Samuel. You know, you, you should have showed up on time. And he actually says, you know, you were not coming. It's your fault, Samuel. It's not my fault. And then he says, in the, in, I'm looking over there and the Philistines are mustering and they got this enormous army and it's like my army scattering. I started with 3,000 people and you'll see in a few minutes, he's, he's down to like 600. The, the people have, his army has vanished. There's deserters all over the place. And then he has this, you know, at the end, he tacks on, you know, this, this spiritual reason. You know, I haven't sought the favor of the Lord, you know, and so how can I go fight without the favor of the Lord? What happened to the man with the new heart? What happened to the, with the man that said, God gave the victory here, you know, a chapter ago? 
analyze these excuses. Two of them are fear-based. One and three. The people were scattering. That makes me afraid because I don't have enough people. He still had 600. That's twice as many as Gideon had. The Philistines were mustering. I'm afraid. Fear is taking over Saul's heart. And it's eradicating faith. There's some blame shifting. Sammy, you, you weren't coming. And then there is this um, ritual focus. I haven't sought the Lord. So this is kind of similar back to, I forget what chapter, five or six, where the, the Israelites took the ark out as the lucky charm to fight the Philistines, and then the ark gets captured. He's saying, I have to go through this ritual. Listen, spiritual life is not about ritual. There's lots of things that we do the same way in our worship services. That's, it's, there's no ritual that is pleasing to God. It's our hearts that are pleasing to God. Hearts of faith. Hearts that because they believe, they obey. And if Saul had kept believing, then he would have obeyed. There's a direct link here. When you believe, then you obey. Trust and obey. That's a great song because it puts these two simple concepts in, in, in close proximity to each other. And the problem that we have as human beings with sinful rebel hearts is that fear inserts itself. If you go back to what we talked about last summer, we talked about this voice in your mind that gets on the stage and he grabs the microphone and he starts shouting so loudly that you can't hear anything else. Mr. Fear was on the stage of Saul's mind and he was shouting, you are in big trouble. These guys are going to wipe out your nation. What kind of a king are you? You need to show some leadership. And he couldn't hear anything else. The fear that he had pushed aside this new heart that God had given him. Fear generates disobedience. Faith generates obedience. Fear charges forward. Faith waits patiently. Fear relies on self. Faith relies on God. Fear fails to see God as powerful. Faith sees God as sovereignly good. Saul sacrificed because he was afraid. And Saul's condemnation of uh, Samuel's condemnation of Saul was that this was foolish. Acting out of fear is foolish. It was also disobedient. And God, as a result, rejected Saul from being king. What kind of a king does God want? He wants a man after his own heart, one that is inclined in the way that he is inclined, a heart that is a heart of faith and trusting and obedience. Saul gave up his new courageous heart and trusted his own old fearful heart. God's looking for a man after his own heart, a man who obeys no matter what, a man who trusts in spite of circumstances. God rejected Saul from being king very simply because he disobeyed God's command. Does this seem harsh? One strike, you're out? I think we can answer that by saying God takes obedience seriously. He wants obedient servants, ones that will obey no matter what. 
And we see at the end of the chapter, battle preparation without weapons, verse 19. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattockses, and a third of, the sh- of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass on Michmash. Not only is Israel vastly undermanned, they are pathetically unarmed. You know what? We see over and over again that God wins battles without arms. God wins battles without strong soldiers. God wins battles without technological superiority. These armies start maneuvering and Israel is lacking weapons. Israel now has a king and the king has an army, but the army has no weapons. It sounds like what they need is a big God. Do you know where you can find one of those? All of this should have drove people to their knees and saying, God, you have saved us before. We need to save you again. A prayer of faith and dependence and obedience. So over these two chapters, we've seen Samuel's lifetime of faithful service to God and God's faithful provision and protection of Israel over hundreds of years. And then in stark contrast, Saul's immediate disobedience rising out of fear. Fear and faith don't coexist. That seems like really definitive and extreme. I think it is. There is a healthy fear that we have. It says we are to fear God. We're to have an awesome respect for him. But when we fear man or we fear circumstances and it starts to affect decisions that we make because those things loom so large in our eyes that we can't see anything else, fear has taken over and faith has been pushed out. So what do we learn about our God from these chapters. Well, I've been harping on one thing all morning, right? I've been harping on faithfulness. We learn, first and foremost, that God is faithful. So no matter what Philistine army is mounting its attack in your life and in your family, God is bigger, God is stronger, and God is faithful. What does it mean that God is faithful? Let's have a little bit of back and forth here. God is, what does it mean when I say God is faithful? He always keeps his promises. Always keeps his promises. That's excellent. That even when we don't comply with what he wants for us, he's always there for us, no matter what. He's always there. Even when we don't hold up our end of the bargain, that's good. Got you just something? Something. I was just thinking that um, God is, I'm trying to think about how to put it. God is faithful even if he doesn't do what we ask because he's faithful in not doing some things because it wouldn't be good for us. Yeah. But he's always faithful. 
That's right. Even when he says no to our prayer, he's still being faithful to us. How about some verses that have promises that we can rely on because of God's faithfulness? Some verses that might pop to mind that show promise. And I'm thinking specifically New Testament now. Promises of God that we can say, God, you are faithful, therefore I will count on you to keep this promise that I see in Scripture. In other words, how is faithfulness made practical in our lives? God who takes hold of thy right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Mm, that's promise of help. Thank you. When Christ says, I go to prepare a place for you. Well, yeah. I go to prepare a place for you. Fred? Yes, he cares for you. Good. Mm. Pastor cares on him, cares for you. Faithless, he remains faithful. Mm. Because one with what I am saying, yeah. When we're faithless, he still remains faithful. I jotted down a couple. Romans 10 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A promise of salvation for those that repent and turn to Christ. Hebrews 13 5, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Never, never, never. I'm, no, I'm never leaving. I'm here. You can't get rid of me. I am God. I am always here. I am here for you. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all your need in Christ Jesus. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive our sins. Faithful. His forgiveness is an attribute of his faithfulness. It's a result of his faithfulness. God wouldn't be faithful if he stopped forgiving us. So when we sin, even when it's the same sin over and over again, we say, God, it's me again. I'm sorry, I did this again. I, I repent. I confess that it's wrong. God's not sitting there saying, you know what? I've forgiven you 82 times on this one. He's not doing that. He's saying, you're forgiven. The blood of Jesus covers it all. Revelation 22, 20. Surely I am coming soon. Love that. Do you ever notice in Revelation 19.11 that, that the name of Jesus is called faithful and true? That's what he's called. This is who he is. He is faithful to us. He is true. Another truth that we learn about God is that God expects faithfulness from us. He expects faithful obedience. He expects faithful service. We heard just a few weeks ago at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is what he calls us to. What do we learn about man? What do we learn about man from these chapters? Prone to fear. Prone to fear. That's a common, common sin. You're not alone if that's a problem with you. It's a problem with me. Forget God. You forget God. What do we do to combat spiritual forgetfulness? Let me ask you a different one. If you habitually forget your keys, what do you, you know, where you put your keys? What do you, what do you do? Put them in the same spot. Put them in the same spot every time, right? 
If you can't remember your phone number, you're trying to teach a three-year-old you know, or a five-year-old, I don't know, how old is when you teach a kid a phone number? I don't know, five years old. And, and you say, you need to know your phone number, so if you get lost, you know, you, they can call mommy. How, you know, what, what do you do to teach them that? Repetition. Repetition, right? So if you repeat something enough and it's important enough, then you will remember it. I can remember my phone number from growing up in Kansas, and I haven't called that number in a long time. 6281329. What else do we learn about ourselves, about man? I would say our rebel nature pushes us toward unfaithfulness. I would say also we need intercession before God. This is something we need. Now, a little thought exercise as we end. In our country, we have all these different funeral traditions. But can you imagine if there was a funeral tradition in a culture where at the funeral, all of the people were asked to write down one word that described this person that just passed away. And they take it and they find out what the, the most common denominator word is. And that's the word that goes on their tombstone. What would be the word that you would want people at your funeral to write down? There's lots of good ones. There's some bad ones. Some people might say handsome, athletic, tall, wealthy, successful. Maybe something more spiritual like loving, generous, kind, friendly, maybe thrifty. Those are all good things, right? Those are all good characteristics. But what about faithful? What if that was written on every one of our tombstones and it was accurate? What would our lives look like now? What would our church look like now? If we were faithful, faithful people. So the, 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 the overall point here is that our faithful God deserves our faithful service. That's who he is. Let's pray. Father, you are a faithful God and we love you for that. And we thank you for your faithfulness as demonstrated through your forgiveness of sin through Jesus. And we ask that you would help us to be faithful because our hearts are prone to wander. We pray that our worship now would be faithful in giving glory to you in Christ's name. Amen.